Hello and welcome to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Baum. I'm here to share techniques and tools to help you engage with your audience and bring art, objects and ideas to life. So let's dive into this week's show. Hello and welcome back to the Art Engager podcast. I'm your host, Claire Bowne of Thinking Museum, and this is episode 112. So I have a wonderful guest for you today on the podcast and someone I've been dying to speak to for a long time now. I'm talking to Sam Bowen about engagement for all. But before that, in the last solo episode, I was talking about how to get started with inquiry-based learning in the museum. So whether you're just starting out or perhaps you're looking to enhance your existing approach, this episode is packed with actionable tips and strategies to help you overcome any fears you have, embrace the unknown and confidently step into the realm of discussion-based programs. So do go back and listen to episode 111. And do make use of the back catalogue of the Art Engager podcast. With over 100 episodes, this podcast is a great resource for educators. But it does take hours of work to ensure that new episodes are designed, edited and released. This show relies on your support to keep going. So if you are able to support the show in any way, I'd be grateful. Do go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Claire Bowne and I'll put a link in the show notes. And you can also help this podcast to reach more people by leaving a review, sharing with your friends or by sharing, liking and commenting on my social media feeds. Thank you for all your support since we started. So let's get on with today's show. First, let me introduce my guest. Sam Bowen is UK-based and delivers training to the museum and cultural sector globally on all aspects of welcoming children with special educational needs and disabilities, otherwise known as SEND in the UK. She also speaks at conferences, writes articles and mentors museums on organisational change in equity, diversity and inclusion. Sam has worked in the museum sector for more than two decades now, during which time she's amassed a lot of experience. She's been a curator, education manager and museum development officer. She brings this knowledge together with her lived experience as a SEND parent to support museums as a freelance consultant. She's the founder of the Send in Museums campaign, author of the Special Schools and Museums Toolkit and creator of sendinmuseums.org, a sector advocacy and guidance resource. In 2021, she was awarded the Radical Changemaker Award in the Museums Change Lives campaign from the UK Museums Association for her work. Her commitment to museums is to help them become accessible to the 9% of the UK child population who are SEND and who deserve equity in cultural engagement. 
So in my chat today with Sam, we focus on her advocacy for special educational needs and disabilities, SEND in museums. Sam discusses her experience and background in the museum sector and how her experience as a mother to a child with SEND inspired her to become an inclusion campaigner. She emphasises the importance of creating inclusive spaces and programmes that cater to the needs of all visitors, regardless of their abilities. Sam provides practical advice on how museums can become more SEND friendly and embed more SEND inclusion in their work and programmes. She recommends that museums consult with SEND families and organisations to better understand their needs and provide sensory friendly spaces and resources to help visitors with SEND feel more comfortable and engaged. Overall, this chat highlights the need for museums to take a proactive approach to inclusion and work closely with SEND families and organisations to identify and address any barriers to access and participation. So Sam and I had a lovely chat and I hope you enjoy it too. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the Art Engager podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I love your podcast. I listen to it every time I go on a long train journey. So delighted to be on it. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Perhaps you could explain for our listeners who you are, where you are in the world, mm. a little bit about yourself. Okay. So my name's Sam Bone. I'm now a freelance uh, museum professional campaigning for SEND in museums. So SEND stands for Special Educational Needs and Disabilities. And I'm also an inclusion campaigner for sort of cultural engagement and inclusion, inclusive playgrounds and on all sorts of things. But I've worked in the sector, museum sector for 25 years. I'm mum to Lucy, who's 14 years old, and she has special educational needs and disabilities. And we live with Craig, who's my husband, her dad. I actually met Craig. He's a museum professional as well so we met on our museum MA so it's all very very uh, cliquey and we live with a fluffy kitten called Rodney and we live in Kent which is in England in the southeast of England. I love the name of your cat Rodney I think it's mm. a very good cat name. Brilliant. So <laughs> let's so let's get into your work. I see mm. that you you've worked in the museum sector for quite some time already you've got experience as a museum yeah. curator education yeah. manager museum development officer so yeah perhaps you could tell me a little bit about uh, your past experiences and how you got into the work you're doing yes yeah, so I've worked in museums uh, like I say for over 25 years the first 12 years of that was before I had my daughter Lucy who I should explain because she is the influencer and in where my work has gone she was born with a unique genetic condition rearrangement and that has resulted in her having learning disabilities at the severe level, complex medical needs, and she's a wheelchair user and is a non-word user. So what I now do is combine that lived experience as having her mum with the wealth of experience I have in the museum sector. So I started out before I had her, I started out, I was a curator to start with in a really large open air museum, looking after around 30,000 objects, interpreting them, putting exhibitions on, family engagement events. I also managed a, a really large store relocation and, and did fundraising. So it was a great job to get a good grounding in so many different areas within the museum. 
him. But always for me, although I started as a curator, always for me, it was the importance of the stories locked into objects, whatever those objects are and places. And so I sort of drifted more into the learning side of things whilst in that job. And then I moved there and really straight into learning because I set up, I was the education manager at Leeds Castle, which is a huge heritage venue in Kent. And I set up their learning department and which was award winning, wrote their schools, program education resources and the family learning resources. But that came to came to a natural close and I then moved into museum development, which if you're not in, in the UK, museum development is a really great service, really. It's central sort of funded, but different teams around the country. And we got involved in everything from supporting training, from anything from conservation to fundraising to retail management, that kind of thing, to then really nitty gritty one-to-one support for museums struggling through organisational change. And I'm really proud of how hard we work, particularly during the COVID lockdowns, a very difficult time for museums in our sector. And, you know, I, I worked extremely hard on that, as did my family, because we were also shielding because of Lucy's condition. If I just go back to when I had Lucy, because it is important, she she changed my career. So prior this sort of pre-Lucy and, and post Lucy since then and prior to having Lucy my understanding as I think most people's were to be fair of access needs were things like physical access needs so like ramps instead of steps maybe braille or large print text for sensory or or visual impairment and you know hearing loops and things for deaf and hearing impaired visitors and possibly things like feely bags but I used them in a way that wasn't necessarily send focused I used them actually for families where literacy was a was a was a problem was an issue so send wasn't a word that was ever used in our sector at all so that was interesting back then but when I had Lucy I had to put my career on hold overnight because of her her medical needs were quite serious and then we started to as a family when we went on days out experience ableism and exclusion due to her access needs from when she was really quite small actually so initially it was things like physical access barriers so like most babies using a, a buggy or a pushchair but obviously she was in a buggy and a pushchair a bit longer than you know normally would be the case and so there were things like you know steps and or here's a place where you can't take a buggy and here's a buggy parking area she was too heavy to carry so that was a problem and then having kind of difficult conversations about uh, a child that doesn't necessarily look disabled because they're in a buggy not a wheelchair and you know what's an accessible buggy and so that I sort of made a mental note of but also then um, we found that some of the actual activities aimed at children and families just weren't accessible or flexible to us and I got angry and sad that the sector that I'd lo- had loved working in before just wasn't working for us as a family. So I was lucky enough to see the opportunity of getting my old job back as a museum development officer. Obviously, I had to apply for it and everything was all above board. But I did see that as an opportunity to making the sector more send welcoming and accessible. And so I worked part time doing that and ran lots of different projects. So in 2017, they allowed me to run a small pilot project locally and I linked three special needs schools with three museums and we all worked together and did fantastic learning and you know really got to the nuts and bolts about what museums need to know but also what schools need to know it was a a real partnership process and the learning from that was so great we wanted to share it so in 2018 I then wrote the special schools and museums toolkit and that was the only sector guidance at the time and it was snatched up by people who people really wanted it. So I thought, oh, okay, there's an audience here. So in 2019, Southeast Museum Development, who I was working for, said, well, let, we've got some funding. Let's make a bigger rollout of that project. 
So we rolled it out across the whole of the southeast of England, quite a large area, and we had 26 partners, which was really exciting. We had preschool learners up to post-16 college students, home educator group, a huge variety in terms of access needs, both learning, physical and sensory. And I'm delighted to say that the 13 case studies are all on the website, which we'll talk about in a minute. So that was 2019. 2020, I then started, you know, what with the lockdowns, the online training became something which was, you know, just just turned on almost overnight. It was obvious that people wanted to know more about this. I think there was a thought that coming back, building better was was talked about a lot and coming back and inclusivity. And then dare I say, I think, you know, the ordinary everyday Joe had a bit of a lived experience of what it's like to have their freedoms limited and uh, options limited. And I think for a while there was a point of um, some shared sort of compassion and that did actually raise disability awareness globally, but also I think within our sector. So it was a good time to make opportunities of that. So again, you know, busy time, 2020 for everyone. And so I took on a two-year project as well, because I knew by then what actually was needed was a portal website, a one-stop shop where everyone could go to. And so it is sendingmuseums.org. I spent a year creating the content, working with partners to develop that and then a web designer to build it. I would just say I'm, I'm neurodivergent as well, and I'm proud that the three of us involved in creating that website were all neurodivergent. And I'm proud because one of the first things people say, apart from, oh my goodness, thank you for creating this, it's got loads of stuff, is it's so easy to navigate because there's a why section and everything falls under that with the advocacy, legal stuff, you name it. And then the the how was obviously a massive element, you know, so the why, the how and the who. So that's a building area where we're sort of creating more space for professionals who can come in and share their contact details on there and and celebrating work. And then in 2022, I went uh, freelance full-time and I I haven't looked back. So I do miss my museum development job, um, but I've taken what I've learned from that and I'm really helping support museums now and I do mentoring and all the rest of it, um, as well as resource development. For me, what's important, and so for the listeners to this podcast as well, uh, great. Yeah. Come work with me. I'd love to work with you. But actually what I want you to be able to do at the end of this is be inspired to think, gosh, that's an audience that I perhaps don't work with at all at the moment or would like to work with more. Go onto the website, find the tips, find the people, find your own local people and start doing the work yourself, actually. And that's not to t- put myself out of work, but really this is everybody's, everybody is capable of doing this. And so when I start my training, because I've got that past experience of working in museums, what I always say is I will never suggest something I know I I couldn't have done myself before, if that makes sense. I will only ever come up with absolutely practical, doable things. And I think that's why I've been so successful so far with this. It sounds like you've had a a really busy few years. Yeah. (laughs) It's brilliant taking us through your journey to the point where you are now. We will Mm. link to the toolkit. We'll link to the sendingmuseums.org. Uh, website as well it's a wonderful resource it is a very easy to navigate website mm, brilliant it's fantastic but for the purposes of our international listeners this podcast goes out around the world perhaps you could explain a little bit about what send is I know it's a UK recognized term other countries may have different terms so that's why perhaps it's it's good to dig into that a little bit yeah, and that's really useful. And I have actually delivered, uh, I've spoken at conferences and delivered training internationally with the, with the benefit of Zoom and WebEx. So that's um, definitely come up for me before. So um, SEND or Special Educational Needs and Disabilities is actually an English 
wide term. Um, and it um, covers uh, birth to 25. Um, so that's in England. In Scotland, it's called additional support needs. So ASN is shorter to. In Wales, it's additional learning needs. So it's ALN. And in Northern Ireland, special educational needs. So just the SEN. And sometimes at the, at the early start, people say, well, what's the difference between SEN and SEND or SEND? And I said, well, not, not much, but really it's the disabilities bit as well. So although a lot of the work has probably been shaped by my new understanding consciousness about what learning disability is through uh, living with and learning through Lucy as, as she grows. A lot of it is then as well sort of sensory disability stuff that you can do. So blind, visually impaired, D-deaf and hearing impairment, and obviously wheelchair users or, or non-ambulant. There's so many, uh, there's so many other layers. But my point is, what I try and say is it really doesn't actually matter where you are in the world and what terms are used in your country or even your region. So it doesn't matter if, as, as in the UK, there are actually some differences in the educational law in, the, in each of those countries that affects the terminology. The point is, it's the actual access needs of that young person and child. And, and that'll be the same wherever you are in, in the world. The only thing is, I, in my work, I do use needs-based language. So that focuses on the individual and their access needs rather than using diagnostic or uh, condition-based language. And again, the reason for that is twofold. So firstly, jargon, if you like, or you know, diagnosis language can be quite medical-based, medical model-based, but it also can be quite overwhelming for non-medical or non-educational staff to use and for people to learn. And I think it kind of what I've tried from the start is to break down any fear barriers of working with an audience or this audience. And the fear can feed into unconscious bias, into prejudice, or just not doing anything, just not starting. So let's get rid of the labels. They don't really help. And also they don't really tell what the person, you know, that the person isn't a label, no individual is a label. So we, we don't use those as a generic term. And like I say, they don't describe usefully in a person's access needs. There's only slight variation in with some neurodivergent communities, for instance, autistic community, who have chosen to use identity first language. So it's just worth you remembering that. But even so, when we're talking about children and young people, still go to, okay, so you've got a school that might be saying, I'm bringing three autistic children in a class with me. But what, what does that look like? What do those children individually actually need for that session to be comfortable, accessible, equitable for them. You know, one label doesn't cover everyone, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Thanks for clarifying that. I think it would be useful for, for people to, to really think about those terms, but also the language that they're using as well. Make sure yeah. that, that any language we're using around special educational needs and disabilities is as accessible and inclusive as possible. Mm. And also, as you said, human-centered. I mean, that's mm. a kind of nice way of summarizing it. Yeah, so it human -centered. The person first, the, the, the human first, mm. and really um, helps people to connect with other people as well. Just on that note, there's an amazing lady called Ellie Chapel. I think she's at Ellie Chapel at on Twitter. And she has this wonderful campaign called Flip the Narrative. So it's hashtag Flip the Narrative, which is all about that, being human-based and going, you know what, there's so much more in common with each other than there is difference. And when you can get that, I, whenever I talk, I always get goosebumps. When I hit certain points, I just had a goosebump moment. But when you can see that, there's such beauty in the work, which I know we'll talk about later. But yeah, it, it's it's getting over those sort of hurdles of, of language and just, just normalizing stuff, really. Yeah. I want to tap into your experiences, not just as a museum professional, but also as 
as mum mm. to Lucy, what it's been like visiting museums over the years with her, with your family all together, mm. two museum professionals in one mm. family as well. <laughs> so perhaps you could tell us a bit about some of your experiences over the years. And Lucy does actually love museums and galleries. I, I take them in and think we've been dragging her around on some kind of busman's holiday. She does love them, which is why I knew, I knew she's taught me, like I say, all of this, most of this has come from Lucy. Yeah, I guess if things have been accessible and inclusive for us from the start, would I have come back into the museum world? Maybe, but probably not doing this. I wouldn't have needed to. So we've had some fairly horrible experiences. A couple of them, just to share, there was an interactive installation in a gallery we go to quite regularly, a big gallery with international artists. And this installation had been created specifically for the purpose of children and young people to climb in, engage and explore. I mean, how often do you get that in a a top-notch contemporary art gallery? Wonderful. A great. And it looked, it was a weird shape. I won't describe it too much because it will identify where they were. And and I have spoken to them since about it. But the point was that this was a self-standing structure in the middle of a very large space with space around it. And and as we approached, we thought, God, that looks interesting. We'll we'll have a go at that. And we saw kids sort of going into this great big space and, and squealing with excitement. You could really feel the buzz and the energy around it was great and seeing, you know, parents enjoying it too. And we got to it and, but it had the, the entrance, that was like a foot high lip to get into it so it actually had a step to get into it and it wasn't a firm step this thing had sort of been made from paper mache and wire and all sorts of things so there was no way I could get Lucy's wheelchair into it and she's non-ambulant I couldn't have climbed in there with her anyway not not safely and so we just sat and watched and and I sort of absorbed this in this sort of shock of thinking goodness this has been created for a one-off thing to happen in this space and I'm sure it hasn't been done deliberately, but somebody clearly hasn't thought about the access needs of, I mean, even a crawling child, a baby or something, wouldn't have been able to crawl over it, but presumably be able to be picked up by their parents and placed in in the thing. So we just sat there and I, as I was absorbing this sort of, gosh, that's that's a bad move. I then looked down at Lucy and it was her face of just sadness, um, awkwardness that she could see that that was for other people. And yet another thing we couldn't take part in. And I wanted to cry. In fact, I think we, when we left, I did cry. It was so disheartening. And so I talk a lot about othering in my training. And we, I think as a sector, we know uh, that we're talking about other communities as well. It comes up a lot in, in racial equality and EDI training. But othering for a disabled child or young person is about seeing their, what should be a right to access play, you know, typical childhood stuff, which is good for uh, your sense of purpose, sense of being, your identity, for communication, for developing a sense of self, or everything, uh, the skills that play has. And I think museums are now moving more into this and understanding that they can be valid play spaces and galleries. That that is a they are being a useful place within the community and serving their public well. Play for all ages, actually. So if you exclude then a child out of that option because you've physically, they've physically gone to get into the play space. You know, that's just, it's just unforgivable. So that was one of the experiences. And then craft activities as well. And this is something I have, uh, something called the no end result sort of 
idea now really about craft activities and that we're not end result uh, driven or goals driven. So some of the craft activities we've taken on really prescribed what good or success looks like from the get go. So another example I have um, in another gallery was that we had gone along to the exhibition. It was art exhibition. We'd seen paintings and pictures on the wall uh, with animals in them. And then we went along to the room at the end that we had uh, a, a long table set out. We could only fit at the end of the table. So as I tell this story, you'll realise if you can picture us at the end of a long white table in, a, in an echoey, you know, galleries often have echoey spaces, don't they? With the children, other families sort of further down the table from us. Um, we went in and the lady said, oh, well, you would have noticed the animals in the paintings today. We're going to make some. And specifically then quoted what she wanted us to make, which from memory was a squirrel, a fox and a snake. And I do remember thinking, at least there's a snake. We'll make a snake. <laughs> and then gave us three blobs of clay, actual clay, you know, like proper potter's clay, which is quite tough to, it's not that like malleable. It's not like Play-Doh. A rolling pin, which will come in the story in a minute, and a, a board to roll it out on. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, she then um, issued three illust- uh, examples of what apparently a child had made. But I mean, they're clearly crafted by this lady prior to the session starting, you know. So anyway, to cut a long story short, we sat at the end of this very long table. Uh, Lucy grabbed the rolling pin, started beating a very loud rhythm on the table with it, while Craig and I <laughs> diligently tried to create these creatures because we thought that that's what we had to. I mean, that's two qualified experienced museum professionals feeling pressured into having to perform and Lucy performing wildly with her rolling pin, thinking it was all hilarious. Now, reason why that was ableist may be a strong language because it wasn't deliberate, but you can have unconscious ableism. You know, what if Lucy had been blind or visually impaired and couldn't see those animals? Then you take a 2D thing so you're a picture or a photograph, or whatever, of an animal or an oil painting, and you're trying to use the cognizance to understand that there's an impression of an actual animal. And then you're taking that and you go, well, here's a new material you've probably not touched before because this is potter's clay. I want you to use your manual dexterity, your fine motor skills, so your finger motor skills and tools, which you might not have seen before, to uh, create an approximation of that animal, <laughs> you see. So there's no sort of you know, people may have problems with stuffed animals, but there's no actual actual animal there today or a photograph of the animals. There were many ways that this could have been made more accessible. So what I talk about now, and, and it was at that moment, actually, was that actual very moment I thought enough's enough. I'm, I'm doing something about this. So I'm glad in a way that, that that happened. But, you know, maybe growth comes from bad experiences. I don't know. But that museum and that gallery has actually now since worked with me and is, is very inclusive and open-ended with all of their activities. We've just done one recently and it was great. So they, there was learning that happened there and I'm pleased about that. But what I say with that is that activities need to be equitable if, as far as possible. And then that means that everybody's getting a, their that what looks good for them experience. So different entry points into something. So for instance, that same activity could have said, we saw some animals today, maybe have some pictures, photographs, magazine articles of animals or some cuddly toys of animals around so that people could then, oh yes, that's that's a fox or that was the snake or that was the, the squirrel. And then, well, if you'd like to make something, well, maybe you can make your own animal up or, you know, or make some footprints or make, you know, here's some, here's some pictures of what the mark making those animals make and they're different. You know, what footprints do you make? And, or just even exploring the process of exploring a new art material. So I think there is beauty in understanding the process and valuing that. And it's at that point then and different ways that send children in particular, but I think all children, when allowed to engage in an art or a museum space, 
if you sit back and let them and, and let them guide you, that's when the magic happens. It's really exciting. Yeah, be happy in the process, which is such an important part of it. And I've just realised as well, because, you know, when you come on a visit, if you add their siblings in, their non-disabled siblings, everybody in that group, in that family group, is affected by the access needs of the disabled person in that group. So we're talking about children because we're talking about SEND, but it could be grandma, grandpa, or somebody else, or the parents even. So, you know, if you don't make it accessible for the person that needs it, you won't get that group so we're talking large numbers of people here. So it's not just, it, there is a business case to this as well. And when I have advocating sessions I do for people trying to think, well, you know, this is the purpose of putting some time and effort into this, it's because it's a massive audience. Families, you know, memory making is, is hugely important. So galleries and museums are special places to making magical memory making or moments of wonder and to not put too fine a point in it or have to issue a trigger warning which I do in some of my training you know Lucy goes to a a children's hospice because of medical conditions for respite many many children that she knows do so memory making for families like ours is, is critical anyway but I do think that there is a special place that museums and galleries have in, in, in paying that forward for families of children with disabled, you know, disabled needs. Yeah, that's a really powerful way, an emotional way of looking mm. at it as well <laughs> through that lens. Mm. Thank you for sharing. That's okay. Could we move on to talk about perhaps how museums might start to include, to be more SEND friendly, to embed more SEND inclusion in their work, in their programs. We'll move Mm. on to museum educators afterwards, but perhaps Mm. just how museums might want to get started, what measures they could put in place to make visits more welcoming, accessible, inclusive. Definitely, yes. So the good thing for you guys is I've created sendinmuseums.org. So even if it's not called Send in your country where you're listening, do go and visit it. And we've got everything on there from programming to museum facilities, resources, all sorts of things. And there's even free to download resources that you can try and use yourself. And they're copyright free. So you can put your own logo on and and change them around as you want. So no no matter where you are in the world, that should be able to help you as a resource. Everything from programming like Relaxed events. So relaxed events are where there may be sensory um, triggers, things like bright or flashing lights or um, loud or sudden sounds are turned off or turned down. And and anybody can be, you know, as they want to be basically um, within a relaxed event. They're really popular and and massively important, I think, and, and dead easy to put into your programming. In fact, actually, sometimes they save money if they're switching things off. Sensory storytelling and send resources. So anything like accessible interpretation methods, sensory backpacks, they're really, really great too. And quite simple to use. There's a page on the website, how to make them. I've just made some for another museum that was literally just launched today, actually, the Beanie in Canterbury. But things like in your shop, as well do you have like pocket money as in you know low low value sensory items that uh, a child could buy in, in your shop because a shop I think and the cafe you know those those bookend a visit but it's absolutely okay and I say this in my training it's totally fine if a family just wants to come in whiz around a gallery or two and go to the cafe and go to the shop you know it's their visit if that's what's good for them and maybe when they come back they'll come back and do a, you know a workshop with you or they come back and see another exhibition but if you do have those facilities and they you know, it's, it's part of the whole organizational uh, approach and so for that purpose as well and also your website your website's a window into your offer so if it's not obvious that you're send inclusive or, or accessible actually for all disabled visitors within a couple of clicks of going into your home page people won't spend more than a couple of minutes on your website looking so they'll go somewhere 
somewhere else. You could use, once you started developing, particularly send accessible stuff, you know, do take some photographs of, you know, arrange photographs with permissions and get them on your website too, because I think representation is the next big thing we need to focus on within galleries and museums, representation of disabled people globally, but certainly disabled children and young people. But how to start? So I guess I guess I want to stress it needs to be a goal that's adopted by everyone in your organisation. So I usually use the stick of rock example until I was so a stick of rock to explain to our international listeners is a piece of candy, which is about what a foot long. Google it. It's, it's layers of melted candy are rolled together and then you can put words in them, basically. So I use this as an example until I was training someone in Brussels recently and they went, what's rock? <laughs> ah. Yeah, it's a very British find. thing, but you it's have a, a seaside, thing. isn't it? It's a seaside it stick but of it, rock. Yeah, But it absolutely serves my purpose to say that the word send or send inclusion it needs to go through the whole stick of rock. So you get it now. So it's, again, it's another linear thing. So if there's any breaks from being your front of house to your curatorial or your learning or your CEO and in, 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 you know, your governance or funders even, if there's any break where they, somebody in that chain or that stick of rock is thinking, nah, you know, I can't see the point of that, then it all falls down. So basically everybody from the front of house, cafe, shop, cleaning staff, people forget cleaning staff and, and operatives and, you know, the whole operations services side of things is critical to a visit. So, you know, way through then also the design, curatorial, learning teams, and like I said, the CEO and governance and funders. But actually for a visitor and curators in particular, I hate it when I say this, it's actually the front of house staff, the most important people in your your gallery space, your museum, because if they don't really have a particularly strong welcome or they're not confident, there was a statistic I I use again in the training from Ecclesiastical, a, a company who do insurance, but they did a study in 2019 with thousands of people visiting heritage organisations and they found from uh, the SEND families, 42% of them had said that they'd been made to feel unwelcome or people were just actually unfriendly to them. Although I would say here, don't let that put you off because, you know, the more of us that make it obvious and evident that everybody is welcome, the more that gets accepted by society, which, which is where actually museums and galleries start to make real cultural change, significant inclusion change by doing best practice. You can influence everybody that's around you in your, in your setting, other visitor attractions, other businesses, all sorts. So it's, it is powerful stuff. But yes, that statistic is was shocking. So I say start the conversation with all of your staff and volunteers first. Ask who has have who's got lived experience of send or disability. And you would be surprised how much then comes out. Now it, it's possible those people don't want to be a champion for it. That's fine. But if they are able and feel safe to be able to share their experience, that you may then be able to say, well, actually then for your cousin, nephew, whatever it is, the link, how can we do better? And start the conversation. And there's two reasons for that. Firstly, you have then lived experience within your own organisation, who knows your organisation, and then you have buy-in and buy-in is huge. So you have to start with the buy-in. And like I say, there's a whole load of pages on, on, on the website under the why bits for the advocacy, because I, I got a bit sick and tired of sitting in conferences where poor drained learning staff were going yes I want to do more of this work but how do I how do I get my manager convinced so we got that nailed now and there's a 10 minute advocacy video and also what I say is there's a section on the website on how to actually start and how to review what you've got there already because you you might have things that are easily adaptable just pick three things just three start doing those 
do them well, get confidence and pick three more. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. But the more you do it, the easier it gets. I will say that. And also it's really fun. Everybody I've worked with, everyone, and I've worked with hundreds of people now, they all say that they, their own well-being as museum and gallery staff is boosted and they see the more purpose in their job and they're just happier with what they're doing. Yeah, moving on from museums in general. So how can museum educators better meet the needs of send audiences? How can we confidently, and I think that's a a really important word to use as well, Mm. how can we confidently lead send inclusive learning programs? I think part of that is is installed in those planning stages. So being able to develop stuff in what we call co-curation, don't we? But I mean partnership, really. Going and finding local partners. So in England, we have special needs schools or there's uh, units within um, mainstream schools. I usually suggest actually to going to the special needs schools because there you're going to have a, a breadth of need and very confident uh, staff able to cover lots of needs and bearing in mind as well one child can have many different needs as we all do so you know maybe see if you could work with local teachers or maybe there's a support group or a family support group you know special educational needs support group for families and then so there's two two things for there really is basically to get suggestions and sort of feedback and start maybe you know trialing things but then also can you then actually then develop a sort of focus group to help you carry on that work there's loads of examples on the website and loads of case studies so recently I did a 40 minute presentation at the museums and heritage show just a stand-up talk pretty much advocacy stuff and I got a lovely email from a lady a month later saying thank you that talk inspired me to be the change I went home I looked at your website I developed some backpacks We've just launched them. They're huge success. I've seen the I've seen the um I've seen the, the benefits immediately. I wanted you to know. You know, that gives me great boost bumps, but it also proves to me that she could do that. That person did that with just a 40 minutes speech and and the website. So I think starting somewhere and developing something and trialing it out. And then, like I said, pick three things and go forward. For specific educational programs, the no end result rules we've talked about is critical. We have to put process, and sometimes that is exploring materials that you haven't seen before at the center of the thing. And also valuing the place itself. I just want to share an experience I had, which was really profound, if that's all right. Mm. And it was school based. The advocacy film that we made, the 10 minute advocacy film, which you will share a link to please, had two different museums. And one of the museums, we took Lucy's class to to film them in there engaging. And because we, we needed to show in a film that it was formal education as, as well as families. But three of the children couldn't be filmed for safeguarding reasons. So they obviously still came on the visit. But when we were doing close-up shots of classes and stuff, they sort of went to the, to the side in different rooms. And I sat down with one young gentleman who must be about the same age as Lucy because he's in the same class and his teaching assistant and I was actually talking to the teaching assistant about how well it had gone we were pleased with the session and this young lad was between us and we were sat on just an ordinary kind of flat bench in front of landscape paintings in in a big gallery room big gallery and big ceilings red walls you know typical traditional gallery space portraits behind us landscapes in front of us 
And I was just, me and him were just in this teaching assistant, were just aware that this young lad was sort of really staring with this absolute look of awe and wonder on his face and the wide eyes and that this great big beaming smile came across his face. And so I started to talk to him. He's non-verb or a non-word user, but I, I checked with the TA. He understood what I was saying and that was safe to do so. And I said, what, what, do you, what do you like about this? Let's have a look at this. And I started describing the painting that we saw in front of us. And it wasn't a particularly pretty port, uh, landscape. It was a cliff, actually, of <laughs> cliffs of Dover. So uh, that was quite funny. So I was talking about, you know, well, you know, there are prettier ones in here, but, you know, what do we like about this one? And then he just looked at me and he took my head in his hands and turned it to look at the other paintings and then turned back to him and put his forehead on my forehead. Obviously, the teaching assistant was there at all times and was totally okay with this. And then just looked again and just sort of just kind of nodded and smiled. And I, I don't think I've had a more profound moment in my whole career. But the teaching assistant was in tears. He said he's never seen him act like that. And he was very calm. It was very obvious that the energy in the room was one of peace and just all this awe and wonder thing, which, which you know, there must be a word for it. Somebody out there must be doing studies on this. I'd love to know, because that's the thing. We're tapping into that level that children like my daughter and this, this young lad get innately very well and it is at that point where I think I flip it so like Ellie Chappell's flip the narrative I try and flip that narrative to go actually what can these young people teach us so like your slow art movement your slow art engagement that you talk about how can we actually step back and really absorb the atmosphere in this place and really see arts and objects for what they are and so then the need for text the need for labels the need for an audio guide just goes out the window you don't need that and it becomes quite empowering for everyone I think so yeah, that that was one of my most pleasurable moments. And I will, it's a shame we couldn't film it because it couldn't be filmed, but I'm sharing it and it's locked in my memory bank. And I'm so very grateful for working with lots of young people like him and my daughter, just showing me a, a different way of seeing and being in the museum and gallery, really. Yeah, what a magical moment. Thank you for sharing that. That was really wonderful. I'd like to leave with some final tips, perhaps. Maybe if someone was listening to this, like the lady you described who listened to your talk recently and then went off and did something, what tips would you give someone listening mm. now who is interested in incorporating some of these ideas or send inclusion into their museum and programming? So first thing, let's just start with the example I've just given you. Why don't you, if you've got a time where the museum is quiet or maybe you have a closed day, go around with your colleagues as a group and don't talk. Just go. I am obviously, I'm putting value here on value judgment on the ability for visual to be able to see. I do. I'm aware of that. So we haven't talked about visual impairment. You have successfully in a, in a previous podcast. So we'll leave that there for now. But go around and just don't talk, see, see if you can and, and go and really examine one or two objects and then maybe share your experiences with your colleagues, how you felt after that. Things for focusing in, if we just think about art for a minute, so, so two-dimensional art particularly, um, if you focus in and take photographs of specific objects in a painting and then you can put, say, I don't know, six or seven or eight of those photographs, just small uh, blocks, on an A4 sheet of paper and then make a viewfinder, which is a piece of card with, with a hole in the middle, nothing particularly fancy. I always laminate the sheets and things, partly because it's easier to hold and oh, then you can clean it and hand it back in. But what that helps to do is then, and if you put on the key on the back of the sheet so that the adult or grown-up 
with the young person can see where those things are go and find that so it becomes a bit of a search and find but actually it what it does is it narrows down the focus into one particular part so maybe say it's a portrait of somebody let's think of portraits and it's just the bow on their lovely shoe so you go and find that I found the bow on the shoe but then you come back from that and you go well actually what's this okay, well, this is a picture of somebody. Well, their clothes look a bit different to mine. And so you actually then start, you've slowed the process down. So by focusing attention, you can then come out from that. So that's a really cheap, quick win, cost nothing. I mean, literally your time to, to print that off. Otherwise, I've, I like multi-century stuff. So there's something called sound tiles, but you, you find whatever recording device works for you. But you basically record up to a few minutes of speech and then you, when you press the button, it, re, it then replays that speech. It's great if you can have a picture of whatever that thing is going to be on there. Otherwise, there's a bit of anxiety about what's sound going to come out of it. But going back to the portraits, I've worked with places when I said, well, you know, this person's from like 300 years ago, but they're still a person. You know, what do they have for breakfast? Or, you know, what are they going to do for their day? What book are they reading? Something about them as this human connection or maybe they can talk about the clothes they're wearing you know they're uncomfortable because it's a corset or something like that send is, is a broad brush covers lots of different areas but even somebody like my daughter who's not a word user she uses symbols but photographs are a pre-symbol stage so start with photos because you can take them and use them and everybody gets that but she understands language spoken language and you know a lot of people in her situation do so Using clear language is and simple structures, uh, shortened sentences uh, and single themed sentences um, is, is useful too. That's a good top tip for communicating. But by all means, you can still share very, you know, complex information about an art piece um, if you make it relevant to the person who's watching it at the time. Yep. And I think that's the case for any audience, isn't it? Um so there are those, and, and using multi-sensory stuff. So another thing, going back to the portrait, let's just stick with portraits, shall we? Because that's a good example. Um, maybe you've got some sample fabric pieces that you have either in, a, I don't know, basket near the thing, or maybe your gallery attendant could have a little bag on them or access to a basket or something where they, if they've noticed that somebody has paused by said painting, they may want to explore some of the fabrics that the person's wearing in that painting. And again, it brings it back into being in the present moment with that painting and the person, the human that was in, that was painted as in that painting and the context. So you are contextualizing what has been put with paint on a 2D surface and bringing it to life. That is really what multi-sensory engagement is about. Yeah, I think, and how, you know, how fun is all of that? I mean, and I've just talked about one painting. You don't have to do it for all the paintings, by the way, just maybe just one or two in a, in a room in the gallery. Yeah, fantastic. Some really mm. applicable ideas there, but easy to implement as well, yeah. which I think is it, yeah. it's, it's part of this as well. It doesn't we don't have to overcomplicate it. No, I love the zoom don't. in, zoom out idea as mm. well. And also you can communicate very complex ideas with quite simple accessible yes, language absolutely. so it's it's these are very it's not simple. rocket science which is uh, you know I feel awful when I say that because I think oh well done myself out of a job but it's like no I want everybody to think that the feel that they can do that with you know prior to even going on a training course or something great come and speak to me again sometime when you want to learn more but you make an inroad and just start somewhere I think that's actually my best advice for anyone you're right it probably will start in the learning team but you really do need to involve everybody else in your organization because you know when somebody comes to borrow that thing that you've made from the front desk if the front desk staff aren't confident in explaining what it's about then it falls down so it's a team effort 
Yeah, so we're going back to our stick of rock. It's I part know. of the culture. Isn't Maybe it? I should bring yes. that out. You know, I need to. No, it's probably all been patented, isn't it? Rock. But no. <laughs> <laughs> next, next project. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Sam, you've shared so much here today. Thanks. I'm hoping that everybody listening uh, is really inspired to go and find out more, to think about what they could implement into their own programming, into their own organizations where they work. So, how can people find out more about you and the work you do? So I'm at uh, www.sambowen.co.uk. On Twitter, I'm on at make, do and send. And the send is capital S-E-N-D. But the project, the campaign that I run as you send in museums is www.sendinmuseums.org. And it has its own Twitter handle, which is at send in museums. And whenever you do this work, particularly on Twitter, please do share with the hashtag. Fantastic. Well, Sam, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom. Thank you so much for having me on. So a huge thank you to my guest, Sam Bowen, for being on the podcast today. Hope you enjoyed our chat. Go to the show notes to find out more about Sam's work and have a look at the Send in Museums website. This website has everything from programming to museum facilities, resources, and even free to download resources that museums all over the world can use to make their visits more welcoming, more accessible and inclusive for everyone. If you'd like to connect with Sam on Twitter or via her own website, follow the links in the show notes too. And don't forget the registration is open for my next two VTMO courses starting in October and November 2023. I'm now enrolling for VTMO Intermediate and Advanced go to the show notes or my website to find out more about my online courses teaching you how to engage audiences with art and objects through discussion and inquiry. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Baum. You can find more art engagement resources by visiting my website, thinkingmuseum.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, at Thinking Museum, where I regularly share tips and tools on how to bring art to life and engage your audience. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with others and subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.